I, um, I wrote the uh, web-based lessons out on the Gimler Collin website um, on the, based on Bill Craig's book. And I'm uh, acquainted with Bill. We partnered a couple of years ago in a, in a debate we did at um, the Cambridge Union at Cambridge University uh, when he did a, a tour around the UK. And uh, so I feel I know uh, not only the content of the book, but the man behind it um, somewhat. And um, as you'll see as I go through the material, um, sometimes I will myself take issue with the particular way in which Bill might put a particular issue. Um, and I think it's, it's good to show some disagreement amongst Christians and apologists so that people get the idea that this is not a, a matter of simply learning by rote. This is the answer. This is the argument to use. Um, but that it is a matter of training ourselves to, uh, to think well and to engage uh, our minds uh, in the issues, to worship God with our minds, uh, and that we need to sort of think uh, through our approach um, so that um, when I disagree with Bill, you may think that I'm wrong, you may think uh, that I'm right, you may think that we're both wrong. Um, this is uh, to give you stimulus uh, for your uh, thinking. Um, uh, let me just start off with a, a quick uh, comedy sketch from some British uh, comedians uh, called Mitchell and Webb uh, that just sets up this whole issue uh, about uh, arguing about whether or not there's a God. <laughs> you got it sorted. That's it. <laughs> and they also conveniently represent all the, the four different positions that you could possibly take vis-à-vis uh, -vis, uh, thinking about the existence of God. Um, but the main thing in that sketch, of course, is that everybody shares their opinion, but nobody gives any reasons for their opinion. <laughs> uh, there was uh, one point where one chap said, it's just that we respectfully disagree. And the host thought that was, that was bad news. But I, I, I think respectful disagreement is good news. It's much better news than disrespectful disagreement, where you just... Um, shout louder or believe who has a, whoever has the biggest advertising budget or, or the biggest stick or whatever. As uh, one theologian uh, said, um, civilised people argue with one another. Barbarians club each other over the head. Um, so even just to disagree with people about the God issue in a respectful manner uh, that doesn't rely upon shouting louder getting hot under the collar, having a bigger stick or a bigger advertising budget, but that therefore depends upon the quality of your argumentation and engagement uh, with the issue is a really important thing. I mean, uh, the apologist's text uh, of choice, 1 Peter 3.15, of course, tells us to always be ready to give an apologia, a reasoned defence for the hope that we have, but do this with gentleness and respect, with respect for God as his ambassadors and with gentleness towards the people with whom we're engaging. So respectfully disagreeing uh, means not um, having an argument, but arguing uh, calmly and, and, and rationally, listening 
to the other side so that you actually understand what, what they think. Um, just think how annoyed you get at reading new atheist literature and going, good grief, you know, Christians don't think this. This is not what faith means for Christians. You're just attacking a straw man and so on. So we don't want to do the same thing either. Anyway, there's uh, just a few sort of introductory remarks uh, about our approach. And I thought it would be nice to kick off with a bit of British comedy for us. Uh, Here's uh, Bill saying that the last half century has witnessed a remarkable resurgence of interest in natural theology, which is often what we call the area of, uh, of arguing for God. Uh, without taking any purported um, uh, revelation f- for granted, as it were. Uh, that branch of theology that seeks to provide warrant, uh, justification uh, for belief in God's existence apart from the resources of a, an authoritative propositional revelation. Uh, today, in contrast to just a generation ago, natural theology is a, bright, a vibrant field of study uh, within the philosophy of religion. Uh, it's quite a contrast to the way that things uh, stood, even as, as recently as the 1960s. Um, in the middle of the 1960s, there was a, a sudden sort of resurgence back of interest in, in metaphysical issues within philosophy uh, that put the debate about the existence of God uh, right back on the table in a way that it hadn't been uh, for half a century or so. Uh, Alvin Plantinga, uh, perhaps the world's most influential Christian philosopher uh, from America, uh, he says uh, there are a number of reasonably strong arguments for the existence of God. And being a philosopher, of course, he's choosing his words carefully there. There are a number of reasonably strong arguments for the existence of God. So it's not saying, well, I think I can give you, here. Well, here's the argument that's a knockdown argument, QED, therefore there's a God, and anyone who disagrees is obviously just stupid, because this argument is just so blindingly obvious that it proves it. Um, that's not generally the approach uh, that people take in this field, even when they're favourably disposed towards natural theology. Rather, people tend to say, I think there are a number of arguments um, that are more plausible than the denial of those arguments are, that when taken together as a cumulative case, give us a sufficient reason for favouring the position that there is a God over the denial of that position. And that's, that's all you need to advance. Don't set the bar um, unrealistically high, as it were, and don't let the opposition get away with setting the bar unreasonably high. Um, it can easily sometimes fall into the trap of, of letting people say, well, now, in order for me to believe in God, you've got to meet this standard. Without actually questioning, well, is that a reasonable standard for me to meet? Maybe the reasonable standard is, I've got to give you some arguments that are, that are logically valid, that means where the conclusions really does follow from the premises, the truth claims that the arguments are based on where believing that the premises of the argument are true is a more plausible thing to do, a more more reasonable thing to do, than is denying them. And as long as you do that, then you have a good argument. Um, Whether or not it's a knock-down argument that would necessarily convince everyone who has a look at it, um, that seems to be setting the bar unreasonably high. So uh, today we'll look at uh, uh, four Uh, arguments for God 
um, that Bill Craig in particular uh, defends in his debate. Uh, he defends different ones in different debates. There's four or five um, that uh, he generally goes to. Um, they all have their own names, some of which are sort of fairly uh, te technological, as it were, in their terminology. Um, philosophy is one of those subjects with a long history, so we end up with words from ancient Greek and Latin and things in it. Um, philosophers love long words from old dead languages that mean, that mean simple things. Um, <laughs> so um, if you ever hear uh, philosophers talking about um, epistemology, epistemology, this is a long ancient Greek way of saying, how do we know stuff? Okay. Um, so that's kind of um, uh, teleological arguments. This is the, the philosopher's way of saying design arguments. Um, comes from the ancient Greece, Greek word telos, which means goal or purpose. So you see that links in with de design arguments. Um, cosmological arguments. Um, ordered beauty, cosmos in Greek. Uh, think of Cosmopolitan magazine. Uh, okay, that's where the kind of words come from. Um, uh, the ontological argument and the, the moral argument. Um, ontos being, the study of being. Um, so don't be put off by the, the fancy terms that philosophers use. Um, just let's... I think it would be really useful for us to, to start with just brushing up upon... And I, I may be teaching my grandmother to suck eggs, as the English phrase goes. You may already know this. Um, but it would be really useful just to brush up a little bit on that thing that I said about the nature of argumentation. Um, because um, you'll notice in the book and in his debates and so on, um, Bill does this, and I think it's really useful for audiences to, to lay out the arguments in terms of premises that lead to a conclusion. So that in the process of debate, he can say things like, well, here was my argument. The atheist on the other side objected to this premise. That was the only bit that he objected to, and his objection was wrong for the following reason. So you, you know what's being accepted, what's common ground, what's being denied, where you have to focus the discussion. Uh, is, is the atheist denying that the conclusion follows from the premises, or is he questioning one of the premises? In order to deny the conclusion, you've got to do one of those things. And if you don't do one of those things, you're not really objecting. Um, is he just using rhetoric to kind of hide the fact that he's not really engaging with and objecting to the argument? Uh, and you'll find that done by atheists in debate a surprising amount. You can look up online. I recently had a debate at Cardiff University with one of my ex-professors, and I was, I was pretty gobsmacked, really, by the, the lack of engagement with the actual arguments that I was defending on his part. Um, he used what philosophers call red herrings, um, in the old days when uh, fox uh, hunting would be, would be going on with the dogs smelling out the foxes, people would sometimes drag smelly red, red herrings fish across the, the trail of the dogs and the dogs would get more interested in the smell of the fish and go off chasing, chasing the fish instead of chasing the fox to sort of ruin the hunt. And we call uh, in philosophy uh, dropping a red herring. It's a sort of an interesting issue that gets the audience's attention, but is completely irrelevant in terms of actually objecting to the argument that's being defended. Um, so knowing about the structure of argument um, helps you um, keep the debate honest uh, on both sides as well. You're 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 putting your your wares, your neck on the block of the common ground rules of rationality. Uh, as well, so that the audience knows you're 
playing fair. So here's a classic, you know, philosophy 101 example of uh, a good argument. Socrates, um, ancient Greek philosopher, is a human. Second premise, second truth claim, all humans die. Conclusion, therefore, Socrates will die. This should be intuitively obvious that that works, as it were. That is a good argument. Given that Socrates is a human, and given that all humans die, are mortal, it follows that Socrates is mortal and that he will die. And this is uh, called Aristotelian syllogistic logic. You can even see that our word, the English word logic, comes from the Greek logistic, logos, in New Testament terms and so on. Uh, in there, um, the kind of argument where you have at least two premises leading you to a conclusion. Indeed, there are three uh, necessary conditions that a good argument has to meet uh, in addition to having um, at least two premises leading to a conclusion. And here's a a little video with my friend uh, Luke um, uh, from the UK uh, explaining this using breadsticks. So this will stick in your mind forevermore. When you think of logic, you'll think, you'll think French bread. Here we go. To make an argument work, you must have three solid building blocks. Thank you. First, it must be logically valid, which means its logic must work. Second, it must have true premises. And third, It must have non-ambiguous terms, which means the words the argument relies on must not have a double meaning. However, if one of these is broken, then the whole structure falls down. So as we have on your handouts there, I've provided you with a a nice flowchart diagram that you can follow. You can use this diagram to test any argument whether you're analysing it or making it yourselves, you ask a series of questions of the argument, and these questions have yes or no answers. You might, of course, be ignorant about what the answer is. You might say, I don't know what the answer to that question is. But the, the facts of the matter are either one way or the other. So if you say, are the premises, the, the truth claims in the argument, are they clear are they understandable and unambiguous? That is, they don't rely upon um, words that, like the same word appears in several places in the argument, but it means something different. There's an, a, a lack of consistency in the meaning of a, of a term that the argument relies upon. Because if there is, that can be very uh, problematical. Uh, for example, if I, if I were to argue as follows... Um, the Boeing 747 is a plane. Okay, plane. A plane, same word in English, is a carpenter's tool for planing a surface smooth. The Boeing 747 is a plane. A plane is a carpenter's tool. Therefore, the Boeing 747 is a carpenter's tool. Um, you're going to have a lot of difficulty doing any carpentry using a Boeing 747, okay? Now, the reason you could get that stupid conclusion out of the end was that the argument played upon the fact that, okay, it's the same word, but it's it's meaning different things when it reappears. 
So that's bad for arguments. It's good for, it's good for jokes if you're Groucho Marx uh, and you want to say, you know, one morning I shot an elephant in my pyjamas. How he got in my pyjamas, I'll never know. <laughs> uh, okay, it, there's an ambiguity. Well, was the elephant wearing my pyjamas or was I wearing my pyjamas when I shot the elephant? Um, it's, it's good for humour, bad for, bad for logic. So yes or no. Uh, and if at any stage you say no to any of these questions, you have an unsound and unreliable argument. <coughs> Does the conclusion really follow from the premises? That is, is it logically valid? Um, so let me give you an example. Um, if I were to argue like this, um, food that's high in fat is, is bad for you. Okay. Uh, some yogurts are high in fat content. Therefore, all yoghurt is bad for you. Now that conclusion obviously doesn't follow from what went before. There's a difference between what I said at the end and what I should have said at the end. What, what should I have said at the end? If I say, high-fat food is bad for you, some yoghurt is high in fat, therefore, some yoghurt is bad for you. Right. But I, instead of saying what I should, I said, therefore, all yoghurt... And that just doesn't follow. So it's logically invalid. Yes or no? And then, finally, are the premises true? Um, so if I were to argue, say, oh, I'm on a diet, but it's coffee time, I really want a biscuit, but I don't want to break my diet, oh, it's a quandary, what shall I do? I know, I'll eat one of the broken biscuits. Because, I mean, as everyone knows, when you break a biscuit... All the calories leak out of the biscuit because you've broken it. It's like breaking the seal. The calories leak out. So you can eat the broken biscuits and, and you take on no calories. So you won't have broken your diet. It's great, isn't it? No. Now that argument contains no ambiguity of language. It's logically valid. If I were to say, um, if broken biscuits contain no calories... And if I only eat broken biscuits, then it would be true that I've eaten no calories. So it's a logically valid argument. Unfortunately for humanity as a whole, <laughs> the premise, when biscuits break, the calories leak out, is false. It's just not true as a truth claim, so it's an unsound Argument. So you see, for an argument to be a good one, it has to pass all three questions, get through all three hoops, uh, for you to uh, put any um, weight upon it. If at any stage any one of these things goes wrong, um, and of course arguments can commit multiple mistakes sometimes, then it's an unsound argument. So that's a really useful flowchart uh, diagram uh, and that's basically, I've now taught you Aristotelian syllogistic logic. Um, that's uh, all the logic you need, unless you're going to go and do sort of um, uh, really symbolic, abstract logic stuff, which you hardly ever need in philosophy. So, fine. So there we go. So now we can start applying those tools to uh, the arguments. So I thought I'd start with the, the most abstract and controversial of these, and then it'll get easier as the day goes on that way. <laughs> End of a long week and all that. And this is the ontological argument. Now, let me put it this way, two premises leading to a conclusion. Um, 
when people first meet this kind of argument, there's often a natural reaction of, that must be some kind of a trick. Uh, It's not a trick, but um, to show it's not can sometimes be quite involved. It's, it's, It's one of those arguments that uh, doesn't immediately connect with many people, but it is fascinating, uh, and I've even used it in debates sometimes, not because I think, oh, this, this, this will convince everyone, but because I think people will think, oh, you know, that, that's silly, that's kind of some kind of trick, and they'll make an objection, and I know that I'll be able to answer the objection. And they'll go, oh, and I mean, it must be... A, must be a bit more deep and complex than I thought it was because I thought this was the obvious objection and well that didn't work oh you know and it starts people just thinking a little bit like this uh, and sort of shakes them a bit I think but just focus for a moment in terms of the the, the question about logical validity and and, um, consistency and so on so the, the, the argument goes like this first premise if it is possible that God exists, then God exists. Okay, don't, don't ask the question at the moment, is that true? Just think about the structure of this argument. If it is possible that God exists, then God exists. It is possible that God exists. Therefore, God exists. Okay, now is that a logically valid argument? If it is possible that God exists, then he does. Well, it is the case that it's possible that God exists. And if, if both of those claims are true, then it follows that God does exist. Okay? Even most atheist philosophers of religion will admit that this is a logically valid argument. And there's, there's no ambiguity in the language. So the terms that reappear here, like possible, reappears... God reappears, exists, reappears. But they mean the same thing. There's no um, Boeing 747 carpenter's tool kind of trick going on there. So actually, the whole debate about this argument resolves into the question, are are both of the premises true? Because if they are, then this is a sound argument for the existence of God. Most atheist philosophers of religion will admit that the first premise is true. And the reason for thinking this is that, um, this goes back to um, Anselm of Canterbury, who famously defined God as, as the greatest conceivable being, the greatest possible being. That's what we mean by the term God. That's what we define God as meaning here. So you now have the concept of the greatest possible being. And then you really you ask this question: um, If something exists, I suppose there are two different ways in which it could exist. It could either its existence could either be such that it, its non-existence is possible, so it's the kind of thing that could exist or could not exist. Well, we know all sorts of things like that, you know, you or me, that chair, etc. But there's another, another possibility, it would seem, if something exists, that it could, instead of being the kind of thing that could exist or could not exist, it could exist but be the kind of thing that can't 
not exist. It would be the kind of thing that, if it, if it exists, must exist. Now, which, which of those two different ways of existing seems to be the, the greater <coughs> way of existing? The more kind of valuable and impressive way of existing? Well, pretty obviously, it would be existing without the possibility of not existing. That's much more impressive than existing, but perhaps not existing, having the possibility of non-existence. So, given that by God we mean the greatest possible being, it would just kind of follow by definition that if God exists, he'd be the kind of being that has existence without the possibility of non-existence. Okay. So the first premise, even most atheists will grant, just seems to be true by definition. So actually all the debate on this argument focuses on is premise two true? What it really shows is that in order to be a consistent atheist, what you have to say is that premise must be wrong. Because that's the only escape hatch. And most atheist philosophers admit that. So to be an atheist, you need to say, it's not possible for God to exist. God must be an impossibility. The claim God exists must be on a par with, must be similar to the claim, um, there exists a square circle, which is just impossible because it's... Nothing can be a square circle. That's, that's not possible <laughs> by, by definition. Or there exists a married bachelor. Well, again, that, that's just not possible. So in order to deny that God exists, you have to say, well, God's not possible. The concept of God is in some sense incoherent, inconsistent as a concept, just as the concept of a square circle or a married bachelor is. Now, having got that far with an audience, Bill Craig will then generally say, so I'll leave it to you to think, what do you think? Do you think that it's possible that there's a God, or do you think the claim, it's possible that God exists, is like the claim, it's possible that there's a square circle? It certainly doesn't seem on the face of it as if those two claims are of the same kind of order. I would say it's certainly a stronger metaphysical claim to make to say that something's existence is, is impossible than to say that, okay, something's existence is possible, but it just doesn't exist. So if I want to deny the existence of the Loch Ness Monster, um, this uh, reputed um, sort of prehistoric beast that's supposed to live in one of the big uh, lochs in Scotland, you know, it's like this sort of... British equivalent of Bigfoot or something. Um, if I want to deny the existence of the Loch Ness Monster, I can say this. Well, I suppose it's possible for there to be a, a big beastie living in Loch Ness, but I just don't think that happens to be true. But what this argument says is you can't, you can't say something similar about God. You can't consistently say, well, I suppose it's possible that God exists, but he just happens not to. In order to deny God, you have to make the stronger claim that actually God's existence isn't even possible. Because if God's existence were possible, 
then he would exist. A lot of this argument hinges upon what you make of, of the concept of, of great making properties. Remember, I, I talked about two different ways of existing, which is greater, given that we've, we've defined God as the greatest possible being. So the, the, the argument does make assumptions that you need to buy into about the, the objective nature of value. So if you're prepared to say, no, nothing is objectively more valuable than anything else. All values are completely subjective <coughs> and relative. Then you can avoid the argument, I think. Because it, it does play with this, this concept of great-making properties. They're, they're, they're objectively valuable properties that are admit of a, of a, of a maximum degree. Um, so think of this chart. I've got non-great-making properties on this side and some examples of great-making properties on this side. So size would not be a great-making property. You can't say, because elephants are bigger than I am, elephants must be more valuable. Uh, because whales, uh, sperm whales are bigger than elephants, sperm whales must be more valuable than elephants. And uh, because a Boeing 747 is even bigger, it must be even more valuable. Therefore, supposing I... I uh, this would be a strange situation, wouldn't it? I've got a building that's on fire, and in the building is a Boeing 747... A sperm whale, an elephant, and me. Okay, you can only save one of us. Who should you save? Well, obviously, the Boeing 747, because it's the biggest. Uh, no, hang on a minute. <laughs> so there's no correlation between size and value, greatness. Um, or spatial position. You know, um, obviously, you're the most important person here, sir, because you're in the middle of the room. Whereas, um, you know, I'm right at the periphery, right at the edge of the room. I'm not in the centre of things, so I'm not valuable. This is the mistake atheists often make when they say, you know, in the Copernican revolution, um, humanity discovered that it didn't live at the centre of the universe, and therefore we don't have value. And this somehow undermined the Christian view of humanity, because we're not at the centre of things. Well, A, it's just, a, you know, it's silly to think that your spatial position determines your value. But B, actually, within the Copernican view of things, the centre of the universe was where hell was, where all the dross of fallen nature existed. And as you went out from Earth through the seven heavens to heaven, you got progressively more and more pure and more and more great. So actually, within pre-Copernican astronomy... The worst place to exist in terms of your value is the centre of things, and the best place is at the periphery. So um, atheists who use this argument are, are completely historically naive, as well as buying into this silly principle that your uh, value depends upon your spatial position. But anyway, that's a nice little aside. Um, but, but power seems to be a great-making property, um, and it has a maximum You'll notice it's called omnipotence. You can't get more powerful than being omnipotent, being almighty. Um, whereas for size, for example, however big a thing you imagine, it's always possible to imagine a bigger thing. Uh, the universe, for example, is, is constantly expanding. Maybe it, it, will go on, it could go on expanding forever, and it will always be bigger than it was before. Um, 
so there's no maximum possible limit on the size of a universe. Okay, so it's not a great making property. But power does have a, a maximum possible limit called being almighty. Or um, being smelly. Because Richard Dawkins in his book uh, says, oh, the ontological argument, that's so stupid. You might as well argue um, that, uh, you know, uh, things, some things are, are smellier than other things. Uh, and so you can have the concept of the smelliest possible being, and that means that he must exist. Well, that's obviously not, not an objection to the ontological argument, because Dawkins just hasn't grasped the fact that, that crucial to the argument is this concept of great-making properties that have objective value and a maximum. And, A, being smellier than you doesn't make me more valuable than you. It might actually make me less valuable in some people's eyes. It certainly doesn't make me more valuable. And there is no such thing as the smelliest possible thing. You can always imagine something whose terrible odour would carry further, <laughs> given a big enough universe, you know. So... Whereas, say, the concept of goodness, that seems to be a great-making property. It is better, more valuable to be good or more good than something else. And there's a maximum of goodness. We call it being holy, being wholly good, being perfect. You can't get more perfect than perfect. Okay? Once you're perfect, you've arrived. Um, and these great making properties, as you see, to be the kind of properties that we, we naturally, instinctually want to apply to God. We want to say that God is holy, is, is, is perfectly good, is almighty, has all the power that you could possibly exercise. And that in his, in his mode of existence, as it were, not only does he just happen to exist, but he has necessary existence. The kind of existence where it's, it's impossible for him not to exist, rather than the kind of existence where it's possible to not exist. Okay? I think we have a question at the back. Question's okay for now? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so, just in my own words, to make sure I yeah. understand, uh, you can say great-making properties are properties which um, have something to do with an objective value, yeah. which can be compared to, to a different value, so there's a comparison possible to something to be more valuable, yeah. and where there is a maximum. Yes. Those three things together are great making properties. Yeah, yeah. Great. You've got it. Thank you. Yeah. I'll, I'll stop after each sort of argument section, as it were, for, for, for discussion that we want to leave. But do, if you want to ask questions of clarification and so on as we go through, um, please uh, do do that. So Alvin Plantinga famously revitalised this argument in the 60s. It was really his use of this argument that, that got philosophers' attention again, saying, oh gosh, these Christians can argue at an academically as rigorous a level as the atheists were before, and sort of um, uh, reopened this whole area. Uh, he does it in terms of symbolic logic and things which we don't need to go into, but he says a maximally great being, uh, the greatest possible being, must exist if its existence is possible. That's just what it means, because necessary existence is a great-making property. So he says that given that the existence of a maximally great being is possible, it follows that a maximally great being therefore exists and exists necessarily. Um, I think I've, I've said this thing about um, the, 
the stronger claim, like the Loch Ness Monster thing. Uh, so I'll skip over that. I like this, this summary from Michael Peterson and, and co-authors. I think this summarizes it very nicely. They say this. For any two objects, if one exists necessarily and the other not, that is, it exists contingently, such that it could either exist or not exist, the first is greater than the second. It follows, then, that if God's existence were contingent, were not necessary, he would not be the, the best, the greatest conceivable being. Because you could say, well, I can think of a greater being, a being that's got all the same properties as what you're calling God, but who also has the property of existing necessarily. And we would all intuitively go, oh, yeah, that, that's what we mean by God. Therefore, God's existence is either logically necessary or logically impossible. You only need to add the claim God's existence is not logically impossible, i.e. God's existence is possible, for it to follow that it is logically necessary. And as I said, the interesting thing about this argument, although most lay audiences on first meeting it kind of feel, oh, that's like pulling a rabbit out of a hat. You're just defining God into existence and this kind of thing. Is that most atheist philosophers will admit that, yeah, there's no ambiguity in the argument. It's logically valid. The first premise, the crucial um, bit of the argument is, is just true by definition. It all comes down to, well, okay, are we going to say God's existence is possible and admit that he exists? Or in order to deny his existence, are we going to say it must be impossible in some way? Um, and how are we going to show that? <laughs> um, you can't just say, oh, well, it, it must be impossible in some way, because I'm then going to ask the question, well, well, well why? It, it doesn't, you know, if I say, you know, there can't be a square circle, it's pretty obvious to me why there can't be a square circle. Saying there can't be a God doesn't seem to be kind of playing in the same ballpark. It, at the very least, it's, it's going to be a much more subtle issue than that, which at the very least shows people that this debate about the existence of God uh, is taking place at a much deeper sort of philosophical level than the kind of impression that you would pick up from reading something like Richard Dawkins' The God Delusion. Oh, well, we can just dismiss. What a stupid argument. You might as well say that there's a smelliest possible being, you know. Um, writers like that are just not engaging at, at, at the level of argumentation um, that is going on in natural theology these days. Um, so Craig, in his book, says, if God's existence is even possible, then he exists. If the unbeliever agrees that God's existence <coughs> is possible, then he actually he's logically committed to the conclusion that God exists. And he says that the concept of a maximally great being, only God, is intuitively a coherent notion. And then he just tends to sort of park that with the audience and say, you know, I'm going to let you worry about that, whilst I now go on to some, some more obvious arguments, as it were. So there we're back to our, our summary of it. So let's have a, a bit of a discussion about that, and, and, and it's, all, it's all downhill in terms of complexity from here on, I promise. <laughs> yes, Ian? Instinctive response is that there must be something wrong with the logic. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
Why? Because there are people who do not accept that God exists for the face of this argument. So where is it going wrong? Is it going wrong in the argument? Yeah. Is it going wrong in their minds? Yeah, so the question is, since this argument doesn't convince everybody that meets it, um, does that show that there's something wrong with the argument or something wrong with people's appreciation of the argument, as it were? Uh, of course, I'm going to say, well, I think there's something wrong with their appreciation of the argument. Um, particularly if they're not able to substantiate their, their reaction, which might be, as you to say, to say, well, oh, there must be something wrong with the logic of that. Because I'm going to ask them, well, what is wrong with the logic of that? What formal logical fallacy does it commit? They're not going to be able to answer that question because it doesn't commit any, any formal logical fallacies. The, the structure of the argument is logically airtight. Um, so they may have this feeling, oh, that's sort of too good to be true. There must be something wrong with it. But when they, if they're prepared to actually engage with it and, and they'll realise that actually they can't, they can't back up their claim and that I, you know, I could show them... Um, that the structure is logically airtight. We're, we're, we're really saying, um, if, if A is possible, then B must be true. A is possible. Therefore, B must be true. Now, that argument will work whatever concepts you plug in to replace the terms A and B. Okay. So the, the structure of the argument would work in a context where we're not, not even talking about God. Um, the fact that we're talking about God um, is relevant to the fact that the, the argument uses a logical structure that's just obviously airtight. If A, then B. A, therefore B. The difference here is, is if A, therefore A, or it seems like A. You're saying if it's possible that A, then A. That's what makes this so mind-stretching, I would say, is because it's counterintuitive to think if it's possible that A, therefore A, that, that, that I think can be difficult to accept. Yeah, so it, this, it, that's, it's crucial to, to see. So the, the claim is um, if the proposition it is possible for God to exist is true, then God actually exists. So there's the difference between it being possible or not for something to exist and something actually existing or not. It's just that in, in, because of the very concept of God, this is kind of a special case in which if it is possible that this thing exists, then this thing does exist. Whereas, say, for the Loch Ness Monster, that's not true. Um, you say, if it's possible for the Loch Ness Monster to exist, then the Loch Ness Monster must exist. Well, that, that's obviously not the case, because the Loch Ness Monster is the concept of something that were it to exist, it would have a contingent type of existence. But by definition, when we're talking about God, we're talking about it being who were God to exist, and we're not prejudging it either way, but were God to exist, he wouldn't have contingent existence, because then he wouldn't be God. He would have necessary existence, i.e. the kind of existence where if it's even possible that he exists, then he must. 
And it's because of this special concept of the greatest possible being that this argument goes through for God, whereas it wouldn't go through for, for most of the things that we think about on an everyday level because they have contingent existences and it makes sense for them to say, well, I suppose it could exist, but it doesn't. But the, the, the subtle thing about the ontological argument is it's pointing out that that's, that's something you can't coherently say when it comes to the question of God's existence. Yeah. Maybe you should add that the, it has to be the Christian God because Zeus or, or any of those would not yes. be helpful. So this is not a kind of a Greek oh, sure. argument. So it's, uh, yeah, it, I mean, if Zeus exists, even with, within Greek polytheism, Zeus is a contingent being. He's not almighty. He's, 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 he's not the greatest possible being. Um, <laughs> only the greatest possible being could be the greatest possible being. Yeah. Uh, yes? Um, it seems to me like there's an issue of burden of proof with respect to the, the second premise, right? Mm. You can say... You have to prove that it's possible that God exists. It's not up to me to, to disprove mm. it, you know. Mm. So rather than, whereas, whereas, you know, if we're using this in a, as an apologetic argument, we're kind of saying, well, prove, you know, if you're going to say it's not possible that God mm. exists, then can you prove that his existence is impossible? And then yeah. you can say, well, I don't have to prove that it's impossible. You have to prove that it's possible. And then in that case, you're almost kind of like a big... At a deadlock. Yeah. yeah. So the question here is, is about issues of burden of proof relating to this second premise. Who has the burden of proof? Uh, actually, it might be a case where you would want to argue that, that, that there's an equal burden of proof. <coughs> you, can't, you can't say either the sceptic has the burden of proof or the defender of the argument has the burden of proof, but actually um, both of them have a burden to give some, some reasons for thinking that they're... That they're affirmation or denial of this premise is more plausible than the alternative position. Um, I'm just bringing out a Christian introduction to philosophy called A Faithful Guide to Philosophy that'll come out at the end of this summer, hopefully. I've got a chapter in there on the ontological argument uh, and I, I end with this issue of burden of proof because there was a Christian philosopher called Peter Van Invagen who, who for a number of years, convinced me that although this was a sound argument, it had no apologetic value, exactly because of this issue of burden of proof. And his argument was, you can't just say, well, because when we meet uh, a claim about something being possible or impossible, we ought to give it the benefit of the doubt. So that what he's saying, um, you can't just say, well, you've got the burden of proof to show that I'm wrong. Because he said, well... What about if I, if I come up with the concept of someone who knows that God does not exist? Someone who knows that it's impossible for there to be a God. Okay? Well, that's a claim about something being possible. So if you have to give all claims about things being possible the, uh, the benefit of the doubt, you'd have to give the benefit of the doubt to the concept... I suppose it's possible that there's a being, there could be a being who knows that there's no God. But that contradicts this premise. Because if there is a being who knows that there's no God, then, then that can't be true. So it, it can't be the case that your only reason for accepting this crucial premise 
is this move of saying, well, you've got the burden of proof. We, we ought to just stick with that unless you've got a reason for doubting it. And I thought, yeah, that, that is quite a, a weighty point. But then it struck me, is it the case that the only reason we have for affirming this crucial premise is this burden of proof move? As soon as you think you've got any positive reason to prefer that premise than to deny it, then you do throw the burden of proof on the, on the denier. And I end my chapter on the ontological argument with about um, eight or nine different separate independent reasons for thinking that it is more plausible to affirm that premise than to deny it. Um, so I think that's a very good question, but I think it can be met. But I think you do need to, to motivate the acceptance of that second premise and, and go, going beyond simply saying, well, you show that I'm wrong. Uh, but I think that is perhaps the crucial issue on the argument. Yeah. Yes, sir. Uh, greatness and uh, objective value seems to be a very important link here. Mm. Uh, is that, I don't know if that's what Hitchens is attacking when he says God is not great. Is he referring to this at all? I've never read Right. So is Christopher Hitchens referring to these great-making properties in the title of his book that God is not great? Um, no. I think he just means God's not all that. You know, like, you know, Allah Akbar, God is great. He's saying God's not great, he's terrible, religion poisons everything, it's awful. So yeah. does this imply, given if we would accept that two is true, does yeah. this imply that if there is such a thing as objective value, then God must exist? Um, okay, so if there is such a thing as objective value, must God exist, given that we accept premise two? Um only if we also accept premise one. <laughs> um, it, it, what I'm saying really is that it is, it is an assumption built into this argument when you phrase it, and that's brought out when you phrase it in terms of, by God we mean the greatest possible being, the maximally great being, blah, 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 therefore this follows, that you are implicitly buying into the assumption that there are objective values in things. And if someone's prepared to deny that, then, of course, they can. that is an escape hatch from the argument. The question they have to ask, as, as with any of these moves, where you deny a premise in an argument, is what's the rational price tag attached to making that denial? What an argument really does is try to connect some claims about reality to a conclusion in such a way that you're not prepared to pay the price of rejecting something about the argument in order to reject the conclusion. So if I can kind of... The, the, the weightier a price tag the argument will attach to rejecting the conclusion, the more likely you are to accept the conclusion. Um, because you'll say, well, I, I see that I could avoid that conclusion if I was prepared to say, everything's relative, there's no objective values, the Holocaust was not wrong. Torturing small children for fun is fine if you feel like that kind of thing. I think most people aren't prepared to pay that kind of price tag, and therefore the more rational thing to do is to accept the conclusion of the argument um, when you see you're faced with that kind of dilemma. If we're we're defining God as the greatest conceivable being, that's almost like working from the bottom up, which almost seems subjective by definition. 
if I'm saying God is, is the greatest thing I can think of, uh, then, you know... Ah, yeah. So are we talking about God is the greatest thing I can think of? Or what? even us as a community. Yeah. The point is we're still looking from a human perspective. So the, the response here, I think, would, would, would be that we're, no, even in Anselm, who, who, who originates this language of the greatest conceivable being, he's not saying the greatest being I or we can conceive of, but the greatest being that we could possibly conceive of, that could be conceived of. So that's why he means the same thing as, as the greatest possible being. Whether or not you can imagine all the details, we're not saying... This argument doesn't depend upon us thinking that we can comprehend the nature of God. It just depends upon us thinking that we we can understand enough to think it's more plausible to affirm that it's possible that there be a greatest possible being than it is to affirm that it's not possible that there be a greatest possible being. As soon as you've got more reason on one side than the other. This is why, although... Anselm, for instance, may have sort of presented this argument in a way that sort of this is a knockdown argument. Sometimes people sort of say, you know, blah blah blah, QED, therefore God, as I said at the beginning. And anyone who disagrees, they must be stupid because you know this is just so obvious. I would not claim that. I would simply say this is part of the cumulative case. This is a sound argument in as much as it's you know it meets those tests, and 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 there is perhaps a, a, a better case for accepting the truth of, of all of its premises and for denying those premises. Um, it's just part of the overall case. Uh, and sometimes, some people have said in philosophy, there seems to be sort of an inverse relationship sometimes between um, how much an argument seems to prove at the end of it and how strong the argument is. Um, sometimes it, it seems that you can have very strong arguments that don't prove very much. <laughs> and if your argument seems to prove an awful lot, then it doesn't seem to be as strong as some other arguments. So maybe this is a fairly weak argument for a very full-bodied concept of God. And as we'll see after the break, the other arguments, which we'll go through a bit quicker, um, they, they don't prove sort of everything that you would want to say about God. Whereas this one, you know, if this is right, then there, not only do we know there's a being who has necessary existence, we know there's one that's omnipotent, who's all perfect, who, um, and so on. Whereas, say, the moral argument would only tell you something about the existence of God's moral character. It wouldn't tell you that he's omnipotent. The cosmological argument might, might show you that he's omnipotent, but it doesn't tell you anything about his moral character. And so on. So the other arguments sort of back up part of the sort of identikit photo of God that's kind of captured by this argument that sort of, as Greg, Craig puts it, sort of captures the general drift of the cumulative case that we're making for God. Yeah.